Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Government Accountability Office gets all the attention, but the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, or SIGI, also has lists of management and financial priorities for federal agencies. Federal News Network's Tom Temin discussed the latest list with the chair of SIGI, the Interior Department's Mark Lee Greenblatt. Okay, so Siggy came up with this list, and I guess my question is, what are you adding here since there is an equal and some ways more comprehensive list from GAO, which admittedly gets more glory than Siggy? Yeah, well, this is the third year that we've done this. We do this every two years, and we are trying to add value uh, where we can. We have 74 IGs that are looking inside the agencies at waste, fraud, and abuse, and every year they're required, each IG is required to put forward their top management challenges for that agency. And so this is a roll-up of all of those, a comprehensive view across government. We think this adds value because it's from inside the individual agencies, and frankly, there is a risk of list fatigue, which is real, there's an old axiom in Washington that the first time you get sick of saying something is the first time that the public hears it. And I think that's an element of this, is that we need to maintain a steady drumbeat of attention on these high-risk areas to ensure that we effect positive change across the federal agency. Because one of the items on your list, and we kind of know this from decades of experience, procurement management is a problem for 37% of the agencies. And the Biden administration just came up with a better contracting initiative. So maybe they were listening. People do listen. I would hope so. That's the whole purpose of this, and that's the whole purpose of our top management challenges report that all the IGs issue every year, is to shine a light on these. And, you know, these are big ocean liners, many of these federal agencies, and, and certainly when you're talking about the federal government writ large, it takes a long time to turn these things around. They don't turn on a dime. And so we're identifying, you know, these problems year after year so that we can develop some momentum toward affecting positive change. And if you look at some of the patterns of your reports and also of the GAO reports and even some others beyond that, there seems to be a theme often of a weakness of agencies in the ability to do their own oversight of programs. You see duplicative programs and one agency doesn't know whether the other agency is funding the same request from a state level agency, for example. We've seen this a lot recently. And so maybe the real issue is not that list, but how do you build up general program management qualities in the senior executive and in the more advanced ranks of the federal employees so that they can avoid these issues and that theme? Absolutely. And, and I think that's a drum that we've been pounding on over the years is to develop the infrastructure inside the federal agencies to manage these programs. We're certainly seeing that in my office. Take, for example, at the Department of the Interior with respect to the Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are huge amounts of dollars, huge programs that are either brand new or greatly expanded from small programs in the past. And so we have flagged that they need to build capacity, both at the ground level and at the senior ranks, as you're talking about, Tom. And that's a significant issue. And the fact of what you were talking about, where multiple grants, say, go to the same recipients for overlapping causes, that's called double dipping. We are seeing that. And we are writing reports on those types of issues to, again, shine a light on them so that the agencies can then take action. 
What's going on with pandemic response? I know that's been a big issue for Siggy, and you know, roughly every two weeks, something else comes out from somewhere on how many billions were wasted on this SBA program or or that FEMA program, whatever. And will we ever get to the outlines of pandemic response? That is a huge endeavor. It is ongoing now. We are seeing a number of criminal matters moving forward in that regard. It's just a question of volume, just a sheer volume issue. But that's something we are attuned to. We are seeing it in unemployment insurance, in the Paycheck Protection Program, PPPs and idle loans. Uh, you know, We're seeing it across the board on a very large scale. And we are doing what we can to either bring those criminal matters forward and try to change inside the programs, but also trying to refer it over to the federal agencies so that they can improve going forward. And that's one thing we're focused on now is shifting to a playbook on how we can help these types of programs in the future. We're speaking with Mark Lee Greenblatt. He's the Interior Department Inspector General, uh, and for today's purposes, chair of the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. And the whole underlying theme of the problem with pandemic response was speed. Congress made a political decision. Let's push the money out as fast as possible because people are starving out there. And the fact is that, you know, another month might have let some of the oversight mechanisms that are well known, they simply weren't invoked to come into place for these programs and maybe some of the billions wouldn't have gone out in the first place. I think you're right. At the time, there was a, you know, a real tangible you know, panic about timing. And I think that's one thing that may be a lesson that we learn going forward in that these types of disaster type scenarios going forward, be it a pandemic or hurricane, you know, whatever it is, we can maybe implement some of those anti-fraud and accountability measures at the outset, which will help us in a significant way ensure that the dollars are going to the intended beneficiaries. Because there were some mechanisms that were just disabled and forgotten about from the financial response of 2008 and 2009, and just wasn't there anymore. And people knew it wasn't there, but nevertheless, the programs went forward. Yeah, I think the mentality was get the money out as fast as you possibly can. You know, I understand the motivation. The problem is if you're in the anti-fraud business and you're trying to protect taxpayer dollars, that is a daunting prospect because getting the money out the door and trying to find the defrauded funds afterward is nearly impossible. It's called the pay and chase model, where you pay and then you chase the fraudulent actors afterward. That's never worked, you know, in, in any scenario. Yeah, it's, you get a little bit here and there, but you don't get the bulk of it back. That's exactly right, Tom. And that's the problem. The pay and chase model, while attractive in a scenario like that, where the motivation was to get the money out the door, which I understand, the problem is the pay and chase model after the fact just doesn't work. And uh, we see that in Medicare. We see that in a wide variety of other settings where there is a pressure to get the money out the door, but there's going to be a significant amount of risk there. And the policymakers need to come to terms with that type of risk and risk tolerance. And now we're seeing that was a lot. And I don't know that we want to do that again. And there's a long list here in your report. We could go through all of it. But the one I wanted to ask you about was financial management, a perennial, 39%. I guess that's the amount of agencies that have that problem. Do you have any sense of those 39% of agencies, how much of the money they represent? Because if it's DOD, then that's half the government spending. 
Yeah, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but it is a large volume of the federal government. I know in my office at the Department of Interior, this is a persistent issue, especially now with the Infrastructure Act and with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Those are enormous sums of money going out the door in the Department of the Interior, and that management is something that we have flagged repeatedly. We do see some progress, some pockets of progress. For example, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, they actually took financial management off their top management challenges list. You know, there are elements of growth and development and evolution in good direction. HUD OIG feels pretty good about that because they have been beating that drum for years. And so I think they've affected some positive change there. The concern is what you raised, Tom, which is that this is really prevalent in the big agencies that are issuing huge grants, huge contracts going out the door. This is just a persistent issue that we in the IG community need to be at the forefront of of affecting that positive change. Because finance has really two aspects. One, can you manage the money according to good accounting practices and have clean statements, which most agencies agencies are getting to. Notably, DOD is still absent there. But then there's also the aspect of waste through poor program management, which is not exactly the same as accounting and financial management, but it does mean more money goes out the door than you planned on in a way that you don't plan on. Cost overruns late. So in many ways, finance reaches into all the other functions like procurement and IT. You're exactly correct. And it undergirds many of the issues that we're seeing here in terms of uh, you know program management and all the issues that you're talking about. They are interrelated here. Uh, so these aren't like clean lines and, and big silos. They do have some cross currents that bleed into each other. And that financial management one is certainly you know one of those. And this report dropped, you know, and presumably it goes to Capitol Hill. But for the past couple of months, Capitol Hill has been a weird hairball of conflict that has nothing to do with normal operations or normal procedures of their own. Did you get any splash from the report so far? Well, we usually get some traction with our key stakeholders. You know, we have uh, a number of oversight committees that we engage with directly all the time. Uh, And so we have a robust dialogue with them, you know, frequently, and and, and we do discuss these things. And they appreciate it. This tees it up for them in terms of what legislation they can put forward. You know, they are trying to solve problems, and we work with them. We're we're happy to identify them and, and identify some thoughts on how we can address some of these problems. And so we have good partnerships with folks on both sides of the aisle both houses of Congress and certainly the executive branch as well. And so I think we're, we're using this uh, as a vehicle to, again, affect that positive change that we've been talking about. Is it still fun to be an IG these days? <laughs> it's, uh, it's always fun to be an IG, Tom. Uh, no, it's hard. Uh, you know, it, there's no question about it, but these are important roles that we serve both at the IG level and in our staff. It's incredibly rewarding. We just had our SIGI Awards ceremony earlier this week, and Tom, it's amazing the work that's happening through throughout the community, affecting positive change, you know, from everything from cyber stalking to cyber fraud, from veteran suicides to violent gangs, from the evacuation in Afghanistan to oversight in Ukraine. We have great work going on across the entire federal government. It's really inspiring. So yes, the answer to the question is that it is fun to be an IG, and I, uh, I, I wouldn't give it up for the world. That's Mark Lee Greenblatt, the Interior Department's Inspector General and Chair of the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency, speaking with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. We'll post a link to this interview, along with a link to the SIGI report, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federaldrive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. 
As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of 
our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people 
on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're gonna become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career. 
and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.